Section six of the Bookman, March nineteen twenty one, by Various. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The Bookman, March nineteen twenty one, by Various. Section six. Murray Hill sees Mr. Chesterton. By Murray Hill. New York, January, 1921. Somewhat later in this article, I am going to present an interview, or something like that, with Gilbert K. Chesterton. At least, I hope I am going to present it. Yesterday, it looked as though I might have to get up my interview without having seen Mr. Chesterton, though today the situation appears somewhat brighter. Seeing Mr. Chesterton, on his visit over here at any rate, seems to be a complicated matter. As anything which gives some view of the workings of the Chestertonian machinery ought to be of interest to all who can lay claim to the happy state of mind of being Chestertonites, I'll begin by telling the proceedings so far in this affair. Then, as matters progress to supply me with more material, if they do progress, I'll continue. I one time wrote an article in which I told with what surprising ease I saw Mr. Chesterton several years ago in England. Without acquaintances in England, some sort of a fit of impudence seized me. I wrote Mr. Chesterton a letter, communicating to him the intelligence that I had arrived in London, that it was my belief that he was one of the noblest and most interesting monuments in England, and I asked him if he supposed that he could be viewed by me at some street corner, say at a time appointed as he rumbled past in his triumphal car. Mrs. Chesterton replied directly in a note that her husband wished to thank me for my letter and to say that he would be pleased if I cared to come down to spend an afternoon with him at Beaconsfield. Mr. Chesterton, I later recalled, had no means readily at hand of ascertaining whether or not I was an American pickpocket, but from the deference of his manner I was led to suspect that he vaguely supposed I was perhaps the owner of the New York Times or somebody like that. This escapade of my visit to Overroads, I suppose it was, that put into the head of the editor at the Bookman the notion that I was a person with ready access to Mr. Chesterton. So I was served with a hurry-up assignment to see him and to deliver an article about my seeing him for the March number of the magazine before that issue, then largely in the hands of the printers, got off the press. Thus my adventures, the termination of which are at present considerably up in the air, began. I at once wrote to Mr. Chesterton at the hotel where at the moment he was in Boston. At the same time I wrote to Lee Kedick, manager of the world's most celebrated lecturers, at his office in New York. I had picked up the impression that a lecture manager of this caliber owned outright the time of a visiting celebrity whom he promoted, and that you couldn't even telephone the celebrity without the manager's permission. I didn't know that you couldn't telephone him anyway, or that you couldn't telephone the manager either. Mr. Kedick very promptly replied that he would be very glad to do everything that he could to bring about the interview, or at least I received a very courteous letter to this effect, which bore a signature which I took to be that of Mr. Kedick. Mr. Chesterton was not to be back in New York until after a couple of days. On the day set for his return to town, I attempted to communicate with Mr. Kedick by telephone. I am, I fear, a bit slow at the etiquette of telephones, and I so far provoked a young woman at the other end of the wire as to cause her to demand rather sharply, "'Who are you?' This matter adjusted amicably, Mr. Kedick turned out to be so utterly remote from attainment that I am not altogether sure such a person exists. 
However, another gentleman responded cordially enough. Still, it seemed to me, upon reflection, that in a matter of this urgent nature I had been at fault in having failed to obtain more definiteness in the matter of an appointment. So I went around to the manager's office, very affably received, presented to a gentleman fetched for that purpose from another room, where he had been closeted with someone else. Mr. Whittacombe, this gentleman's name, introduced as Mr. Chesterton's secretary, a pronounced Englishman, in effect, said very politely, indeed, several times, that he was delighted. Mr. Chesterton, however, was going away to-morrow, would return two days hence, made Mr. Whittacombe very careful memorandum of my address. In due course of time, thought I'd better look up Mr. Whittacombe again. His memorandum might have got mislaid. Telephoned lecture bureau, satisfied young lady of honorable intentions, explained matters all over again to owner of agreeable masculine voice. Received assurance that Mr. Whittacombe would be reminded at once of pressing state of affairs. Disturbed by uneventful flight of time, I called in at lecture bureau once more. Learned that Mr. Whittacombe had not yet turned up. They, however, would try to get him on the wire at the Biltmore for me. Yes, he was there, but the fourth-floor desk of the hotel said he had just gone into Mr. Chesterton's room, and so, as apparently everyone ought to know, could not be communicated with just now. He would call up shortly. Lecture people suggested that I go round to the hotel. If Mr. Whittycombe called in the meantime, they'd tell him I was on my way over. Thought I recognized the gentleman stepping out of the elevator at the fourth floor. I did not know whether or not it was at all the thing to lay hold of an Englishman in so abrupt a fashion, but concluded this would have to be done. Mr. Whittycombe was all courtesy. The point, however, was that Mr. Chesterton had had an hour of it this morning, had had an hour of it. This afternoon he was getting off some work for London. Then tomorrow, of course, would be his lecture. My matter did seem to be urgent, but what could we do? Mr. Chesterton was a beautiful man. He had been so hospitable to the gentlemen of the press, but if we should go into him now he would say, Dear me, dear me. I readily saw, of course, that this would be an awful thing. Still, Mr. Whittycombe was somewhat inclined to think that we could do this. Suppose I should come to the Times Square Theatre the next afternoon, at about a quarter to five, call for him at the stage entrance. Yes, he thought we could arrange it that way. I could talk to Mr. Chesterton in the taxi on the way back to the hotel. Perhaps detain him for a few moments afterward. Mr. Whittycombe smiled very pleasantly indeed at the idea of so happy a conclusion of our difficulties. And I myself was rather taken by the notion of interviewing Mr. Chesterton in a cab. The fancy occurred to me that this was perhaps, after all, the most fitting place in the whole world in which to interview Mr. Chesterton. So everything seems to be all right. New Complications This is the following day. In the morning mail, a letter from Mrs. Chesterton, saying so sorry not to have answered my letter before, but it had been almost impossible to deal with the correspondence that had reached them since they arrived in America. Her husband asked her to say he would very much like to see me, and... Could I call at the hotel round about twelve o'clock on Sunday morning? No difficulty about meeting Mr. Chesterton and the kindness of that, but Sunday might be quite too late for the purpose of my article. So I'll go to the theatre anyway, and I'll certainly accept all Chesterton invitations. A colored dignitary in a uniform sumptuously befrogged with gold lace who commanded the portal directed me to the stage entrance. I passed into a dark and apparently deserted passage, and paused to consider my next step. 
Before me was a tall, brightly lighted departure, and coming through this I caught the sound gently rising and falling of a rather dulcet voice. A slight pause in the flow of individual utterance, and directly following upon this a soft wave, as of the intimate mirth of an audience, wafted about what was evidently the auditorium beyond. Just then a figure duskily defined itself before me and addressed me in a gruff whisper. I was directed to proceed around the passage extending ahead, to room three. I should have passed behind a tall screen, I recognize later, but inadvertently I passed before it, and suddenly found myself the target of thousands upon thousands of eyes, with the unmistakable back of Mr. Chesterton looming in the brilliance directly before me. Regaining the passage, I found a door labeled A-3. Receiving no response to my knock, I opened it, and peered into a lighted cubbyhole about one-third of the size of a very small hall bedroom. The only object of any conspicuousness presented to me was a huge dark garment hanging from a hook in the wall. It seemed to be... Ah, yes, it was a voluminous overcoat with a queer cape attached. So, I was in the right shop, all right. I thought I ought to look around and try to find somebody. I wandered into what I suppose are the wings of the theatre. Anyway, I had an excellent view, from one side, of the stage, and of a portion of one gallery. The only person quite near me was a fireman, who paid no attention whatever to me, but continued to gaze out steadily at Mr. Chesterton, with an expression of countenance which, as well as I could decipher it, registered fascinated incomprehension. I attempted to lean against what I supposed was a wall, but to my great fright the whole structure nearly tumbled over as I barely touched it. Perceiving a chair the other side of the fireman, I passed before him, sat down, and gave myself over to contemplation of the spectacle. My first impression, I think, was that Mr. Chesterton was speaking in so conversational a key that I should have expected to hear cries of, Louder! coming from all over the house. But from the lighted expressions of the faces far away in the corner of the gallery visible to me, he was apparently being followed perfectly. I did not then know that at his first public appearance in New York, he had referred to his lecturing voice as the original mouse that came from the mountain. Nor had I then seen Francis Hackett's comment upon it that it wasn't, of course, a bellow, neither was it a squeak. Mr. Hackett adds that it is the ordinary good lecture-hall voice. I do not feel that this quite describes my own impression of it the other afternoon. Rather, perhaps, I should put the matter in this way. My recollection of the conversation I had with Mr. Chesterton in 1914 at Beaconsfield is that there was a much more ruddy quality to his voice then than the other day, and more, much more, in the turn of his talk, a racy note of the burly world. Perhaps he feels that before a representative American audience, one should be altogether what used to be called genteel. At any rate, I certainly heard the other day the voice of a modest, very friendly, cultivated, nimble-minded gentleman, speaking with a nicety of precision more frequently observed among English people than among Americans. There was in it even a trace of a tone as though it were most at home within university walls. Though indeed, I am glad to say Mr. Chesterton did not abstain from erudite, amused, and amusing allusions to the society most at home in the pubs. And I cannot but suspect that perhaps he would have been found a shade more amusing than even he was if... but no matter. One gentleman who wrote a piece about his impressions of Mr. Chesterton's lectures here felt that the audience didn't have quite so much of a good time as the members of it had expected to have. I heard only a brief concluding portion of one lecture. 
The portion of the audience which came most closely before my observation were those seated at the well-filled press-table, which stood directly between the speaker and me. These naive beings gave every evidence of getting, to speak temperately, their money's worth. Though Mr. Chesterton turned the pages of notes as he spoke, he could not be said to have read his lecture. On the other hand, it was clear that he did not appreciably depart from a carefully prepared disquisition. The tumbled mane which tops him off seemed more massive even than before. It did not, though, appear quite so tumbled. I think there had been an effort, since 1914, to brush it quite nicely. Certainly it is ever so much grayer. I think in my earlier article I said something like this. Mr. Chesterton has so remarkably red a face that his smallish moustache seems lightish in color against it. While Mr. Chesterton's face today could not be described as pale, it looks more like a face, and less like a glowing full moon. The moustache is darker against it, less bristling than before, more straggly. A couple of our recent commentators upon Mr. Chesterton have taken a fling at the matter of his not being so huge as, it seems to them, he has been made out to be. I remember that when I saw him before I was startled to find him more monstrous than even he had appeared in his pictures. He appears to take part a good deal in pageants in England, and recent photographs of him as Falstaff, or Tony Weller, or Mr. Pickwick, or somebody like that, have not altogether squared up with my recollection of him. True, he has not quite the bulk he had before, but it is a captious critic, I should say, who would not consider him sufficiently elephantine for all ordinary purposes. He was saying, much to the delight of the house, when I became one of the audience, that he would not regard this as the time or the occasion for him to comment upon the lid on liquor. A bit later in the course of his answer to the question he had propounded, shall we abolish the inevitable, he got an especially good hand when he remarked, People nowadays do not like statements having authority, but they will accept any statement without authority. He concluded his denunciation of the idea of fatalism with the declaration, Whatever man is, he is not in one sense a part of nature. He has committed crimes. Crimes, he repeated, with gusto in the use of the word, and performed heroisms which no animal ever tried to do. Let us hold ourselves free from the boundary of the material order of things, for so shall we have a chance in the future to do things far too historic for prophecy. I darted back toward room three, ran into Mr. Whittycombe, we wheeled, and saw the mountain approaching. Whereas before this off-stage place had been deserted, now the scene was populous, with the figures of agitated young women. Mr. Whittycombe, however, with much valiance, secured Mr. Chesterton. "'Yes, yes,' he said, and, remarkable remark, "'I had the pleasure of meeting you in England.' He glanced about rather nervously at the dancing figures seeking to obtain him, and led the way for me into the dressing-room. Mr. Whittycombe pulled the door to from without. I am far from being as large as Mr. Chesterton, but the two of us closeted in that compartment was an absurdity. Mr. Chesterton eclipsed a chair, and beamed upon me with an expression of cheerable-like brightness. Upon his arrival in New York, he had declared to the press that he would not write a book of his impressions of the United States. I asked him if, after being here a week or so, he had changed his mind as to this determination. Not definitely, he said, not definitely. But, of course, one could never tell what one might do. He might write a book about us, then? Yes, he might. Did he think it at all likely that he would take up residence over here? A very joyous smile. 
"'One's own country is best,' he said. Rumors had several times been afloat that he had entered the Roman Catholic Church. Would he say whether there was any likelihood of his doing this? He was an Anglican Catholic, he replied. Not a Roman Catholic, yet. That was not to say that he might not be, if the Church of England should become more Protestant. What was his next book to be? Had he any project in mind of going to Turkey or Mexico or some such place? No, the only books he was working on at present were a new volume of short stories and a book, smiling again widely, on eugenics. He knew Mr. Lucas, of course. Yes, fine fellow. Did he know Frank Swinnerton? No. What was... But the door was popped open. Several persons were waiting for him, among them Mrs. Chesterton. I helped him into the cape coat, stood behind the door so that when it was opened he could get out. You know Mr. Hill, he said to Mrs. Chesterton. Thank you so much, he said to me, and was whisked away. Sunday at the hotel. He was late in arriving. I thought it would be pleasanter to wait a bit out in front. Expected he would drive up soon in a taxi. Then I saw him coming round the corner, walking, rolling slowly from side to side like a great ship, Mrs. Chesterton with him, a little lady whose stature suggested the idea of a yacht, gracefully coursing alongside the huge craft. I wonder if, nowadays, when most writers seem to try to look like something else, Mr. Chesterton knows how overwhelmingly like a great literary figure he looks. When we were seated, I asked if he had any dope on his New Jerusalem book. He began to tell me how surprised he had been to find Jerusalem as it is, but the substance of this you may find in the book. He expressed sympathy with the idea of Zionism, remarked that he might become a Zionist if it could be accomplished in Zion. All that he could find to tell me about his New Jerusalem was that it had been written on the spot. Seemed very disinclined to talk about his own books, said his feeling in general about each one of them was that he hoped something would happen to it before anybody saw it. His surprise at Jerusalem suggested to me the question, had he been surprised at the United States, what he had seen of it? But he dodged giving any view of us. His only comment was on the multitudinous wooden houses. Had he met many American authors? The one most recently met, a day or so ago in Northampton, though he had met him before in England, was a gentleman he liked very much. He was so thin, Mr. Chesterton thought the two of them should go around together. His name? Gerald Stanley Lee. But there is not a particle more of time that I can spend on this article. Murray Hill End of section 6